Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13 yet again. John chapter 13, and I want to remind you that if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we've got Bibles on the back of the pews or chairs in front of you. We'd love for you to use that for this next bit of our time together, and we'd love for you to take it with you as our gift to you. John chapter 13, today we'll be considering only three verses, John 13, 36 to 38. We are, we are walking our way really slowly through some of the last things that Jesus taught his followers in a, in a crucial meeting with them on the same night that he would be betrayed and that the machinery of his death on the cross would kick into gear, carrying him all the way to the end. What did he teach to them and through them to us with his final hours on earth. This section of, of John's gospel that we are considering through the fall uh, is mostly a section of teaching from chapter 13 to chapter 17. But every now and then, every now and then a curtain pulls back just a bit and you get a glimpse into the fact that this teaching, it's unfolding near the climax of an incredible story wonderfully told. Our three verses this morning are one of these moments One of these moments where we get our little glimpse into that larger story. And it comes through a powerful contrast between Jesus and one of his most famous, most influential followers, the disciple Peter. John, the man behind this gospel that we're considering this morning, was undoubtedly, undeniably a wonderful storyteller. He was just super creative as a writer and artful. And how he puts things together from beginning to end. That, that, that should bring us, I guess, no surprise then to know that, that he would get a lot of use out of contrast. Good storytellers love to use contrasts between characters to help you understand those characters better. I mean, how much could you really know about Sherlock Holmes if you didn't have Dr. Watson by his side all the time? I mean, you could tell he was smart, I guess, but... But man, does he look smart when Dr. Watson is so, so, so slow to get the point. When he's like a thousand steps ahead of him and just just bringing him along step by step till he finally gets it. And how neurotic would Sherlock appear if he didn't have Dr. Watson's calm, sensible earthiness to sort of bring him down out of the clouds and into the real world. If you didn't have Dr. Watson's selflessness and care for people, you wouldn't see Sherlock in all of his self-absorbed, Fantasies of grandeur. Or, or uh, who would Harry Potter be without Draco Malfoy? Am I right? This kid who is born and raised by people who don't really love him or want him, who has nothing to his name, compared to the kid who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, the apple of his very powerful father's eye, groomed and raised for greatness. This one who loves his friends, who's selfless in providing for them, Sensitive to their needs, the other cruel and faultless and only interested in getting ahead. One powerful beyond anyone's imagination, the other always just a little bit disappointing, underperforming to his potential. How, who would Harry Potter be without Draco? The contrasts make the characters pop in a way they wouldn't without one another. And that's what John is doing in the verses we're going to consider this morning when he contrasts Peter and Jesus. Now, why am I going on and on about this? Let me tell you why. Here's why. Last two Sundays, we have looked at examples that Jesus set for us and called us to follow. We saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples, get up from his task, 
sit back down in his place and say, you see what I just did? A servant is not greater than his master. You serve each other like I served you. And last week we saw Jesus say, as I have loved you, and know he's talking also about his death, as I'm going to love you, so you also love one another. Two examples, powerful, crucial for understanding what it means to live as a Christian. But in our passage this morning, Jesus makes exactly the opposite point. Jesus says he's going somewhere that you cannot follow. He's going to do something you could not possibly do. What he's going to do is not fundamentally an example. It's a rescue operation. Perhaps the most important distinctive between Christianity and other religions out there is who Jesus, the founder of our faith, is to us. Yes, he is a charismatic and inspirational leader. Yes, he is a wonderful, compelling, accessible teacher. But the truth is that we need far more from Jesus than inspiration to live the best version of ourselves. We need far more from Jesus than just insight into how the world works and and what it looks like to live well in it. We need somebody to rescue us, in a way, to rescue us from us. And Christianity rests on something Jesus does that no one else can do. That's the truth that Peter means, or excuse me, that John means to communicate to us about what it means to be a Christian from contrasting for us Peter and Jesus in these short little verses that we'll see this morning. I want to begin by reading them for you, and then I want to show you the difference between the ignorance of Jesus or of Peter and the knowledge of Jesus and what that shows us about being a Christian. The ignorance of Peter, that'll be point number one. The knowledge of Jesus, what that means for following him. Let me read the text. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in John chapter 13, verse 36. This, friends, is the word of the Lord to us. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me show you first the ignorance of Peter. Jesus has just given this beautiful and clear statement of the central command for the new community he is building. As I've loved you, so also you must love one another. This would be a natural time for a moment of silence, wouldn't it? To just let it sink in. Maybe at best a follow-up question about how to apply it to one's life. But Peter's mind is on the setup to what Jesus has commanded. Jesus had told them that soon he'd be going somewhere they couldn't come. They wouldn't see him anymore. That's what Peter wants to talk about. Lord, where are you going? And I guess it's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, it's reasonable. It's understandable. It's a question every other disciple is surely asking on the inside, even if they lack the courage to speak it out. But in his question... 
And throughout this little conversation that follows, Peter shows an ignorance that is crucial for how the story plays out from this point forward. And I think once we've paid closer attention to it, it's an ignorance that may seem a little too familiar to us. It's certainly an ignorance John knows we need to see if we're going to see Jesus in all his beauty. There are two layers to Peter's ignorance. First, Peter doesn't yet understand Jesus. Peter doesn't yet understand Jesus. Uh, He's been with him in lockstep for several years by this point. He's heard every sermon. He's seen every miracle Jesus has worked. He's paid close attention to the character of this man. And he's had more access to him than most people could have. But still, he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing or why Jesus has come. Think of all that Peter would have seen and heard by this point in the story. Peter was there back in John chapter 6 when Jesus took one boy's small snack and multiplied it so that it fed 5,000 people. Peter was right there. And he was there not just to see Jesus do that fancy trick. He was there when Jesus explained its deeper meaning. When Jesus said that he would give his own body and his own blood for them to eat and to drink so that they could have eternal life through him. Peter was there for all of it. He was there when Jesus described himself as the good shepherd and told his hearers that that he would one day lay down his life for the sheep on purpose, of his own accord. Peter heard that. He was there when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, called on Lazarus, a dead man, to come out. And Peter was there when Lazarus did exactly as he was told and walked out again, fully healthy. He was there when Jesus explained the point of that miracle-working power. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Even though he should die, yet he will live. Peter heard all of that. And when Jesus says that he's going away and they can't be with him, Jesus has all of this on his mind. He's speaking of the death he's going to die. He's speaking of the resurrection that would follow three days later. He's speaking of his return to his father, where then he would prepare a place for his people. Peter still can't see it. He doesn't yet understand that Jesus is building a kingdom not of this world, as Jesus will soon tell Pilate. At this point, Peter's been impressed by Jesus. Surely that's why he's given up a lot to keep following him. In some ways, he's he's put his hope in Jesus basically hitching his wagon to wherever it is that Jesus is headed, but but he doesn't yet understand Jesus. And on a closer look, I'm convinced he doesn't yet understand Jesus. That's the first thing he doesn't understand because he doesn't yet understand himself either. That's the second thing he doesn't understand. Peter doesn't yet understand himself. See, when Jesus tells him he can't follow where he's going, at least not for now, Peter isn't having it. Lord, he says, verse 37, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you, he says. That's so on brand for Peter. He is that guy. He's the impulsive one. He says what he's thinking. He says it when he's thinking it, and we love him for that. He was the one who just a couple weeks ago we saw, he didn't want Jesus washing his feet until he finds out that's the only way he could be with Jesus. He couldn't be with Jesus otherwise. And then he says, well, wash all of me then. Not just my feet, but my head and my hands. Wash everything. This man is unfiltered. And in his response here to Jesus, we get an unfiltered look 
into a heart that, that's still proud. He assumes that he can't follow Jesus where Jesus is going because Jesus doesn't think he's up to it. In other words, he thinks Jesus doesn't understand what Jesus has got in Peter. What do you mean I can't follow you? Do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to Peter. I'm Peter. I'm the one who stuck with you back in John 6 when so many others fell away. I got the point of that whole talk at the feeding of the 5,000. I told you, you have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? They may fall away. Not me. Not Peter. And, And Matthew's account of this very scene right here, when Jesus is warning of the betrayal to come, Peter says, all these folks, they may leave you. I never will. I'm Peter. He thinks Jesus is lucky to have him. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the first thing that was said about him publicly in John's account were words by John the Baptist who sees him coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now near the end of the story, Peter still doesn't grasp this core of who Jesus is and what he has to do. And I believe the reason he doesn't have a category for a sin-bearing, sacrificing Savior is that he doesn't really understand himself as a person who needs one. He's still focused on what he brings to Jesus, not on what Jesus brings to him. He's still thoroughly self-confident. And friends, there is no higher barrier to understanding Jesus than the self-confidence that lives in your heart. I wonder if you, if you see yourself here in Peter at all. Maybe you find yourself sometimes struggling to understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus I mean, it's just so relentlessly focused on blood and sacrifice and judgment and redemption. And maybe you feel yourself shrinking back when you read those parts. Is that hard for you to accept? Does it seem bizarre and unnecessary to you? Maybe even a little bit offensive? I wonder if in that maybe you're recognizing at least a little bit of Peter's self-confidence. Maybe you wouldn't put that label on it, but but maybe you're drawn to focus on what you bring to the table as one who will take up the mantle Jesus provides and go and love others in his name rather than focusing on what you lack in yourself. Maybe in the last two Sundays, as we were looking at these examples Jesus has given us as a servant who washes feet and as a one who loves and calls us to love in his name, Maybe if you were here for those sermons, did you find yourself thinking about how much more you're doing now to serve than other people around you who seem to be slacking off? Or maybe you heard those sermons thinking of the other people in the room that you hope are listening well, hoping that through what they're hearing, they'll become a little more like you. Do you recognize yourself in Peter?
If you do, and I hope you do, then you'll also be encouraged to see not just the ignorance of Peter, but the knowledge of Jesus. This is the other theme in these three verses that John wants to make really, really clear. For all of Peter's ignorance and blindness to what's going on right now, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. John is using the truth about Peter to show us the truth about Jesus by contrast. Peter doesn't understand Jesus Peter doesn't understand himself. Jesus, on the other hand, knows exactly what he will do, and he knows exactly what Peter will do. Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. Peter thinks that he'll lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus knows, no, it's just the other way around. You've got it exactly backwards. Verse 38, Jesus says, Will you lay down your life for me? To Peter. I want you to hear it like this. Will you lay down your life for me? It's exactly backwards. This phrase is almost a direct quote from Jesus' teaching about himself in John chapter 10. When he describes himself as the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. What makes a good shepherd? I will lay down my life for the sheep. Nobody takes it from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. I came to do that. I have this charge from my father. That's what he's taught. This line is not an accident. You will lay down your life for me? Jesus has a full knowledge already in this moment of what the rest of the New Testament will tell us about about his death and all that it accomplished. I'm thinking here of some of what Paul teaches us in Colossians. Colossians 1.13 says it's through Jesus that God transfers people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus knows in this moment his people need to be redeemed from bondage. Colossians 1.20 says it's through Jesus that God reconciled to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus knows he's got to make peace between God and God's enemies. Colossians 2.15 says, He, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus knows he's got to take down the power of the devil and all his minions, That's what he's got to do, and he knows it. Jesus knows that his death will crush the power of death, as Hebrews tells us. He lays his life down to take it up again, as he's already said in John 10. He knows he's the resurrection and the life, John 11. And underneath all of that, the key to all of that working, he knows that his death will pay the penalty that our sins required. It all goes back to what John the Baptist said of him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows that about himself. He knows that's what he's going to do. And that's why with his last breath, while hanging on the cross, he does not say, go and do likewise. He says, it is finished. I did it for you. Jesus hasn't come primarily as an inspirational figure or a wonderful teacher 
or even a compelling model to follow, though he is all those things and more. He has come fundamentally at root, at base. Jesus has come as a one-man rescue operation. You cannot follow me where I am going. Only Jesus gets this job done. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. He also knows exactly what Peter will do. That's the other thing John wants us to see here in these few verses. The irony in this statement, will you lay down your life for me is even deeper than we've seen so far. You, Peter? (laughs) Are you that blind? Do you think so highly of yourself? It's it's one thing to say that you'd lay down your life for me here in this nice, warm, well-lit room surrounded by all your friends with a belly full of good food and wine. It's easy to say in that room, I'll lay down my life for you. I'm Peter. But when you're out there in the dark, when you're surrounded by enemies, when you've got no one to protect you or even overhear what you'll say, I'll tell you what you'll do. Verse 38. The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus here is forecasting a scene that's at the heart of the bigger story John is telling. And it'll be right in the center of the story he tells of Jesus' death that plays out a few hours after this conversation and told to us in John chapter 18. It's kind of like these few verses here. The contrast between Peter and Jesus, this emphasis on Jesus knowing everything that's going to happen, are the teaser for what John tells us there in chapter 18. And just because this story is so rich, and just because the way John tells it is so important for you getting the point he wants you to get from what Jesus has done and why you need him so badly, I want you to turn to chapter 18. You flip over a couple of pages, just a couple of pages, John chapter 18. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to draw your attention to themes in this beautiful, compelling story that come out in the three verses we've been looking at this morning. After dinner, after this conversation is finished, Jesus relocates the group to a very familiar spot on the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem. From this vantage point, up on a hill, you can look out and see the whole city. It would have been beautiful. A city like that at night. Torches flickering, lamps burning, lights in the windows. From that vantage point up on the hill, he also would have seen verse 3 a band of soldiers coming for him from far away, snaking their way up the slopes of that mountain with their armor clanking and the boots stomping and their torches flickering in the darkness of that night. That's verse three. He would have seen all of that. They didn't sneak up on him. And he knows exactly what's gonna happen. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, stepped into the buzzsaw, stepped over the cliff, in effect, stepped willingly up onto the cross. He knew all that would happen. And his complete control over this situation, it comes through again and again in the details that John gives us throughout this chapter. He's the one in verse four who questions them. They've come to arrest him, but he comes forward and says, who do you seek? 
They tell him they're looking for Jesus. He tells them, I am. And at that great declaration, verse 6, they fall down and worship. They're completely dwarfed by this man whose greatness they can't deny. But Jesus isn't looking for a getaway. They've come to arrest him, but verse 8, he's carrying the conversation. He's negotiating the release of his followers in verse 8. If you seek me, let these men go. And when dear impulsive Peter, in a burst of courage, takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the men, Jesus stops him. Verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And from this point forward in the story, he stands before one powerful figure after another who want to take him, want to convince him to take back what he's been saying about himself in public. They want him to deny his claims about himself and fall back in line beneath them. And every time he stands before one of these figures, he stands tall. He stands firmly by what he has said. Meanwhile, throughout this chapter, what comes through just as clearly as Jesus resolved to do what he's going to do is Peter's growing distance from Jesus all the way up until the point where he denies knowing him altogether. This scene plays out like John is a film director with a focus of his camera swinging back and forth throughout this chapter. It's on Jesus and Peter together. When they split up, it follows Jesus for a little while, swings back to Peter for a little while, swings back to Jesus for a little while, and back to Peter for a little while. Driving home the same contrast between them that we've seen in chapter 13. From the, from the moment of Peter's little burst of courage, when, it, it, when it, it, the, the, the scene from, from chapter 13 begins to play out. He said he would lay down his life for Jesus, and he begins well. He's brash and self-confident, even there in the garden. But Peter is a man who's seen Jesus do incredible things. He's a man who's been drawn to Jesus' miraculous power. He's the man who knows Jesus brought Lazarus out of his grave, and he's not going to struggle with a small band of Roman soldiers. Jesus can handle this. Maybe what Jesus needs is a good example. Maybe I'll be the spark that lights the fire off with his head. And he pulls out his sword, and he chops off his ear. And I can imagine Peter standing there just waiting on the others to follow him. He didn't expect Jesus to say, Put your sword into its sheath, verse 11. Jesus doesn't rally to him. Jesus welcomes Jesus' own demise. And for Peter, this is not good. Camera follows Jesus from there to his first interrogation before a man named Annas, verses 12 to 14, then swings back to Peter in verse 15. While Jesus was in there standing tall before one of the most powerful men in Israel, Peter stands before a servant girl at a door outside the complex. Verse 17, she asks him, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. The camera swings back to Jesus. Verses 19 to 24. Then back to Peter again, standing outside next to the charcoal fire. Maybe we give Peter a pass for that first interaction, that question on the way in that he wasn't expecting. Maybe he responded without thinking and out of fear. But by this point, by the charcoal fire, this man has had time to think. And if he is as human as you or me, surely he's thought of little else since he denied knowing Jesus at the gate. He knows what's in the, happening to his friend in there. 
he can probably guess what lies ahead for Jesus. And now he's given another opportunity to stand with him. The crowd around the fire asks him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And again, he denied it. I am not. Then another face in the crowd pushes in even further. This was a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. You don't forget the guy who cuts off your relative's ear. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Verse 26. Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Guys, this is just incredible storytelling, isn't it? And all of it is foreshadowed in the three little verses we've considered in John 13. And all of it is absolutely intentional and crucial for what John wants us to learn from this story. He wants us to see the difference between Peter and Jesus, between Peter's ignorance and Jesus' knowledge, between Peter's cowardice and Jesus' courage in the face of certain death. Why? What does he want us to see through this contrast? Friends, through the distance between Jesus and Peter, he wants us to see into the very heart of the gospel. Jesus did what he had to do in part because he knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He died his death on purpose, not despite Peter's pride and cowardice, but precisely because he knew Peter was proud cowardly he died so he could forgive Peter for what he knew Peter would do against him if he had died for a coward believing that coward was a saint then we would pity him wouldn't we that's one way to read this back and forth as if we as the readers are into something that's going on that the characters themselves in the story don't see yet as if Jesus thinks of himself as the one who's leading the charge and he expects Peter to have his back and Peter's falling away out there while Jesus is in there doing what he's got to do. We would pity him if we had an insight into the situation he didn't have. Or if this was the kind of story where he actually did die for a saint, you might even respect him for it. Wow, love that man, that lovable man so much that he was willing to die to save his life. You might even understand a sacrifice like that one, but this was not that kind of death. Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God... God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, here's the point I want to leave you with. What it means to be a Christian comes through so clearly and powerfully in the contrast between the ignorance of Peter and the knowledge of Jesus. I want to make sure you see it. Like every single one of John's stories in this whole book, this is one that invites us in to find ourselves as characters within it. At the very end of his book, he sums up the purpose of the whole book. I have included what I've included, not to entertain you, but to persuade you. It's a story told so that you'll believe that he is the Christ, the Savior you need, acting right here for you. 
And in this story, he shows us what it means to be a Christian, specifically how you become a Christian and how you grow as a Christian. How you become a Christian and how you grow as a Christian. Here's what it shows you about how you become a Christian. You must come to Jesus, not for what you bring to him, but for what he gives to you. You should know, if you're considering Christianity, that Christianity is absolutely a whole way of life. Being with Jesus should touch everything about us. And like any other religion, Christianity comes with beliefs about the world and how it works and what our lives are for and how we ought to live them. But it is not first and foremost a way of life. Christianity and the Christ at the center of it is a gift of grace. It is received only one way. Open and empty hands. It's common to think about religion as one or another sort of exchange. One way or another, through one religion or another, I give obedience and in exchange, I am rewarded. I do what I'm told to do I get paid. And Christianity is a a sort of exchange too. But it is a completely different sort of exchange. In Christianity, I give my sin and my punishment over to Jesus. He wears it. And he gives his reward based on his obedience over to me. And I wear that. Jesus, in this religion, goes to the cross for a man who at that very moment would deny even knowing him. And Jesus did that knowing exactly what was happening all along. This story shows us how you become a Christian. But it also affects how you grow as a Christian. See, friends, obedience in the Christian life matters a lot. The New Testament cares just as much about What we do with our lives is the Old Testament. It cares just as much about the holiness of God and the importance of living in a way that tells the truth about him. And and in the the weeks to come in this series through John 13 to 17, we're going to see a ton of commands. There's a lot of commands in these chapters. Jesus telling his followers, this is what my followers do. This is how my community looks day to day as a way of life. But to grow in obedience as a Christian The only way to truly grow and keep on growing is to know fundamentally underneath all of it that he loves you. You have to know that he loves you. See, here's the thing. Growth as a Christian in this life while we're still dealing with sin every single day, what that growth looks like is taking your sin more and more seriously. If you're becoming more and more like Jesus, more like the God who made you, then you're becoming more and more sensitive to what he's already sensitive to. Sin bothers him, it'll start to bother you more the more you grow. The holier you are, the less holy you will feel. You'll be more and more sensitive to where your sin shows up, more and more aware of your tendencies, your weakness, your fickle heart and mind. 
Another way to say it is that Christian growth means growing more and more bothered by sin at exactly the same time that we're growing more and more aware of how deep our sin goes. When you're getting better, you're going to feel worse. So here's the point. When you come to see the depth of your own sin, as that is pulled back for you, layer by layer, by this surgeon who cares for you and wants you to see what he sees, you're going to need to know that Jesus is two steps ahead of you. Jesus saw it all, just as he saw who had in Peter. He doesn't see it as you do. He has seen it. Your sin, as you grow, will continue to surprise you. Over and over, it will surprise you. Your sin does not surprise Jesus. Because what's new to you is not new to him. He has always known the depth of your sin. He has always taken your sin seriously. And what he knows about you has not driven him away from you. It has drawn him closer to you to help you. Your sin that you haven't even recognized yet drove him to the cross 2,000 years ago. And he knew exactly what he was buying when he paid that cost. He knew exactly what you would need. He knew exactly how much it would cost. He resolved to pay it down all the way until it was finished, and he did. And that same sin that he's always known about and that he paid for once and for all 2,000 years ago, you know what it does for him now? When he looks at you stumbling through the rest of this day, that same sin that drove him to the cross then draws him in now towards you as your great high priest who prays for you that you might have everything you need to follow him all the way to the end. That's what Jesus is doing with his life right now. That's who you have in him. Let's pray now that he will help us to remember it and to rest in him together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this gift of your son. How great a gift. So much greater than we can even recognize, much less pay you for And though we have nothing with which to pay you for this gift, we do accept it and pray to you that you will apply this gift to our hearts deeper and deeper with each passing day and that through your son Jesus, you would hold us in faith that we don't have on our own until he comes again. We ask you for this in his name because he's worthy when we're not. Amen.